Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. Our first series mainly features talks from this year's London lectures on the theme of expanding horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening its scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world, new themes and novel methods. Today, we're asking whether we can reconcile the ways in which aesthetic experience, our appreciation of natural and artistic beauty, is rooted in the particularities of time, place and culture, with the desire to make generalisations about the human condition. Our guest, Eileen John, is going to help us answer this question and more. Eileen is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick and Director of the Warwick Centre for Research in Philosophy, Literature and the Arts. She has a specific interest in literature and its philosophical and ethical roles, and she tries to show the relevance of literary works to contemporary debates. After Eileen's talk, we'll be launching into a discussion which featured questions from our live online audience. Before we do that, here's Eileen John on The Possibility of Global Aesthetics. I've taken the theme of expanding horizons as a chance to think about some issues I rarely face squarely in my own work, Um, and that concerns aesthetics, philosophy, and our our lives as aesthetic beings. So I'm going to think about whether the following three things can be triangulated. First, the individuality and cultural locatedness of each of our aesthetic lives. Second, the aim of aesthetics, that is a branch of philosophy, to account for aesthetic life in philosophical terms. And third, the aim of philosophy to formulate concepts and principles with universal relevance. I'm going to do a whirlwind tour through this triangular relationship, hoping to offer a no and yes answer that will make some sense by the time we get to the end. I'm going to start with three, the aim of philosophy, and I'm going to consider a challenge that was posed to much academic philosophy a few years ago. This is from an opinion piece in the New York Times. So I'm quoting from this opinion piece. Of the top 50 philosophy doctoral programs in the English-speaking world, only 15% have any regular faculty members who teach any non-Western philosophy. Quote, no other humanities discipline demonstrates this systematic neglect of most of the civilizations in its domain. So the writers recommend that departments should be renamed Department of European and American Philosophy. This simple change would make the domain and mission of these departments clear. They say non-European philosophical traditions offer distinctive solutions to problems discussed within European and American philosophy, raise or frame problems not addressed in that tradition, or emphasize and discuss more deeply philosophical problems that are marginalized in that tradition. We hope that philosophy departments will someday teach Confucius as routinely as they now teach Kant, 
that philosophy students will eventually have as many opportunities to study the Bhagavad Gita as they do the Republic. Okay, and the authors of that are Brian Van Norden and Jay Garfield. Now, that piece was written in 2016, and my guess is some of the facts they're pointing to have changed even since then. And one thing I'd say about this, part of the problem that they're pointing to is that the domain and mission, as they call it, of philosophy departments seem arguably to be both exactly what they say, historically region and culture specific, but not so limited in their self-conception and their intellectual and human ambitions. That is, I don't think philosophy departments think they're um, just addressing uh, a limited cultural context. So let me say a little bit more about that. Suppose that, as seems possible, each philosophical tradition, and I mean Chinese philosophical traditions, European ones, everywhere, suppose that each of them aims for universality. Is this part of what it means to be philosophical? To think about the most basic nature of reality, how to be oriented within reality, say how to know things, how to desire things, how to locate one's ego, and how to live well, to think about what has value. So roughly, to think about questions that can arise for anyone, whenever, wherever, whoever you are. So not the nature of 2021 reality, not how to be oriented to reality in, for instance, Coventry, Jakarta, Bogota, or Dakar, not how to live well just for you or for me. Okay, if you were focused in those ways, you possibly wouldn't be doing philosophy. Now, Van Norden and Garfield do not resolve the question of whether the goal is what you might call a global philosophy um, that would kind of harmonize everything, or whether the goal is to preserve distinct philosophical traditions in diverse, regionally, culturally, linguistically affiliated homes. Um, the quote from them that I gave where they're talking about problems suggests that maybe there is a shared pool of problems and we need to all help each other out with them. That points perhaps toward the global philosophy model, but I don't think they're, they're not settling this. So as academic philosophy awakens to its limitations and embraces a complex, diverse world of philosophical thought, as it is gradually doing, and I think must do, what happens to universality as a goal? How should philosophical ambitions evolve? I'm going to move on to the second thing on my list, which is the aim of aesthetics. Aesthetics, as a branch of philosophy, studies qualities of experience, responsiveness to those qualities, and the making, experience, interpretation, and appreciation of art. There's sort of two things that come together in philosophical aesthetics, and there's a lot of debate about how and why they come together. Is it really just about experience and special um, possibilities of experience, or is it really about art? It's usually those two things are connected. I'm not going to resolve that issue about the nature of aesthetics. Western philosophical aesthetics has emphasized the appreciative relation between stimulus and perceiver. 
for instance, what is it to experience beauty or sublimity in the world? And also, can claims about aesthetic value have intersubjective warrant? Aesthetic value is a sort of more contemporary term um, that's supposed to be broader than terms like beauty or sublimity. Those are sort of have too much baggage and people have wanted a kind of vaguer term. So they've used this notion of aesthetic value. Um, and then they've asked, can these claims stand up intersubjectively? Is aesthetics just a subjective domain? But that's the kind of thing Western aesthetics has really focused on. I'm going to give you a little taste of Immanuel Kant, who I think is the most influential aesthetic theorist in the Western tradition, writing around the end of the 18th uh, century. So he says about the judgment of beauty that it's a matter of taking disinterested pleasure. That's a technical term for him. A disinterested pleasure in the free play of one's cognitive powers within your first person experience of an object. Don't worry if not all of this um, makes full sense. I just want to give you a sense of the kind of approach he takes and highlight a few of his other claims. He says, no one allows himself to be talked into his judgment about the beauty of a garment, house, or flower by means of any grounds or fundamental principles. One wants to submit the object to his own eyes. Okay, that's from this critique of the aesthetic power of judgment where he lays out his theory. He says, we ground our judgment of beauty on a feeling not as a private feeling, but as a common one. Okay, people usually find that kind of puzzling and interesting. He says, beauty is valid only for human beings. That is, animal, but also rational beings. That was a claim I read when I was an undergraduate, and it really grabbed me. I thought, Kant is saying beauty is a human thing. It's one of the things that makes us special. And it involves us being animals, but also thinkers. And I, I just, I liked the boldness of that claim. Um, and I think you can look at what Kant is doing in this way, that it's kind of vision of aesthetic response as a universally shared human faculty not demanding knowledge or cultivated taste, but activating basic human experiential and cognitive capacities. This is not the only way people think about Kant, but it's a way that I want to emphasize. He says this, when you're judging something to be beautiful, one solicits assent from everyone else because one has a ground for it that is common to all. So for Kant, the experience of beauty is something we all have access to in common. It's based on something we share with everyone else. Okay, so I like this as a kind of approach to the universality of aesthetics, universality of aesthetic life. But let's go back to one, which is the aesthetic dimension of life as we live it. All right. I'll just say some general things about what I mean. I think we are constantly orienting ourselves to reality aesthetically, 
we are experiencing and simultaneously responding to our environments through more than conceptual classification. We're feeling what is familiar, coherent, out of sync, interesting, boring, mood-enhancing or mood-deadening, glorious, awful, to be shunned or savored. Like we're sort of doing this pervasively through the day. And that is, I think, a pretty basic, important kind of orientation to reality. And I'd say it's basic to feeling at home in the world or not feeling at home in the world. Uh, When you don't feel at home in the world, I think part of that is likely to be aesthetic disorientation. Now, the aesthetic responsiveness is not isolated. It, It binds with and quickly feeds into more cognitively and practically focused interpretations of reality. This basic aesthetic experience turns into categorizing. It helps us compare things, choose things, decide what to preserve, what to destroy, helps us assess danger and all sorts of environmental conditions and possibilities that are relevant to action. And I guess I just think it happens in each of us personally, individually, this orientation, and it will reflect our specific life paths. But to complicate things, it also embeds assumptions, expectations, needs, and desires that we acquire as members of specific groups and cultures. So I think there are two interconnecting forms of non-universality at work in us as we develop an aesthetic orientation to life. I'm going to illustrate this personal aspect of aesthetic life with two passages from Toni Morrison's short novel, The Bluest Eye. This novel has been kind of important to me in my own philosophical history, and I'm just picking out a couple of passages to show a little bit what I'm thinking about. This passage concerns a young girl going to the corner shop to buy some candy. So here's Morrison on this girl's walk to the shop. Three pennies are in her shoe, slipping back and forth between the sock and the inner sole. With each step, she feels the painful press of the coins against her foot, a sweet and durable, even cherished irritation, full of promise and delicate security. She moves down an avenue gently buffeted by the familiar and therefore loved images. The dandelions at the base of the telephone pole. There was the sidewalk crack shaped like a Y, and the other one that lifted the concrete up from the dirt floor. They were real to her. She knew them. They were the codes and touchstones of the world, capable of translation and possession. She owned the crack that made her stumble. She owned the clumps of dandelions whose white heads last fall she had blown away. And owning them made her part of the world and the world a part of her. Okay, I hope you can see part of what I'm after here, this being at home in the world. This is a passage in which Morrison, I think, is trying to evoke that by portraying this girl's close recognition of these sort of trivial things in her world, the dandelions, the cracked pavement, and so on. 
Morrison does a lot more with this passage. It sets up a, an arc in which the girl goes to the store. She's black. The shopkeeper is white. He treats her with contempt or distaste. And when she comes out of the shop, she no longer can have this experience of the dandelions, for instance. She calls them weeds. And so Morrison is talking about the social pressures on our ability to have an aesthetic life that's our own. But this passage is the happy part of it, where I think she's just getting at, you know, what it's like to be a child and be fully aesthetically attuned to where you live. Second passage is from the narrator of this novel, um, talking about the fact that she gets these white baby dolls for Christmas, and that's not what she wants. Okay, so this is Claudia, the narrator, also an African-American girl. But I did know that nobody ever asked me what I wanted for Christmas. They would have known that I did not want to have anything to own or to possess any object. I wanted rather to feel something on Christmas Day. I want to sit on the low stool in Big Mama's kitchen with my lap full of lilacs and listen to Big Papa play his violin for me alone. The lowness of the stool made for my body, the security and warmth of Big Mama's kitchen, the smell of the lilacs, the sound of the music, and since it would be good to have all of my senses engaged, the taste of a peach, perhaps, afterward. Interesting things to say about the role of ownership and possession in these two passages. Leave that aside. I take these passages to articulate the highly personal aspect of aesthetic orientation. So I kind of ask each of us, you know, which patches of the earth are familiar and loved by me or you? How would each of us specify a fully enveloping desired experience as Claudia does in the passage right here? Now, I'm going to switch gears and think about the other piece of the non-universality. Um, so let's think about diverse, historically and culturally located aesthetic orientations. How our aesthetic lives embody collective practices, evolving traditions and sources of meaning. I'm going to look at two examples from aesthetics uh, in discussions that explicitly aim to give access to aesthetic traditions Chinese painting and a kind of Japanese taste to people who are not at home in them, like me. And these are both discussions I studied in my aesthetic education, so I'm turning back to them because I found them illuminating when I encountered them. First, here's British philosopher Harold Osborne on traditional Chinese painting. And a quote from him, to give you a sense of the sorts of features he thinks need to be communicated to someone who doesn't understand this tradition. Quote, the Chinese painter was not concerned, except incidentally to the pursuit of other aims, to imitate the appearances of things or to represent things ideally as he would like them to be. The cultivation and practice of painting were thought of as a ritualistic activity, creating an embodiment of the cosmic force of order, which infuses all reality, human society, and the individual personality. His work would be imbued with and would reflect the Tao. 
this reference to imitation of appearances will call to mind for Western-trained philosopher Plato's rather dismissive account of painters as imitators. The aesthetic principles of calligraphic brushwork constituted the core of appreciation in painting. Monochrome painting, whose excellences lay in the subtle variation and blending of tones and the appropriate style of brushstroke, was perfected. The styles of brushstroke were elaborately classified. They were like tangled hemp or the veins of the lotus leaf, and there are a whole bunch of categories like this. The paradigm of the Chinese painting was the scroll, which was opened gradually and read consecutively in time by the observer, not seen in a piece. So all of these things, not imitative, imbued with the Tao, calligraphy being as it were, the entry into appreciation of painting, these very finely delineated kinds of brush stroke, and then this notion of paintings as scrolls that could be read. I I find all of this really interesting and something I'm not attuned to immediately. Second example is Yuriko Saito on what she calls this is the name of her article, The Japanese Aesthetics of Imperfection and Insufficiency. She says this is a quintessentially or considered a quintessentially Japanese taste. The celebration of those qualities commonly regarded as falling short of or deteriorating from the optimal condition of the object. So, for instance, impoverished-looking and irregularly shaped Korean peasants' bowls, often with chips and cracks, were highly esteemed. They're cups that are, as it were, you know, on their way out of usefulness that have been preserved and repaired and repaired with gold. So there's something quite interesting going on there. She traces really complex sources and kinds of meaning um, for this aesthetics of imperfection and insufficiency. I'm just going to give a sample of the things she talks about. There's aesthetic potential to this of contrasts, of the evocation of the ending of things, of wondering about an object's history when you can see the evidence that it's had a hard life, And she talks about the appreciation of imperfection being entwined with a yearning for perfection. She talks about the socio-political meaning of this kind of taste. Was it a privileged pleasure that you could have because you could get the perfect object if you wanted? It was encouraged politically because it was thought to help the wealthy and powerful refrain from being ostentatious. Um, It was thought to have value in encouraging the non-privileged to be satisfied with insufficiency. And then it was also, this taste was critiqued for putting a positive aesthetic spin on real poverty. But then she also traces it to religious and metaphysical potential meanings. Shintoism's egalitarian affirmation of things with, you know, no value discriminations being made or Zen Buddhist ideals of overcoming the ego, of surrendering to materials, of accepting lack of control. Saito and Osborne both are signaling the great scope, the depth, and the intersection of factors that can lie behind being at home with an aesthetic taste or an artistic practice. 
do these examples of intricately meaningful traditions argue for the intractability of universalizing aesthetic theorization? Somewhat differently from the personal aesthetics, but I think it just adds to the difficulty. I'm going to conclude here by trying to reckon philosophically with these phenomena with the personal and the cultural locatedness of aesthetic life. And this is just an initiation of thinking for me. This is not a resolved line of thought. It's a sketch of responses. So, one, I guess I think we should not seek a global aesthetics if what that means is seeking a harmonized conception of aesthetic engagement and a set of evaluative concepts that apply universally. That just doesn't seem interesting to me even, much less possible. I think we should study the interesting, diverse substance of aesthetic life. We should encounter more than one feels at home with. Do, and do not assume convergence and interpersonal agreement. But try to compare, to translate, to enable access to aesthetic variation with care, caution, humility. So what Saito and Osborne were doing, I find really helpful. Um, they did, there's a lot of scholarship lying behind what they did, as well as personal experience. And I think that's a kind of challenging work that people like me should do more of. I think we need to defer or demote concern for judgment of aesthetic and artistic value. Assessing what is best or most valuable seems unhelpful, if not thoroughly intractable in this context. I think understanding forms of aesthetic life comes first. Fourth, what, what am I doing when I do aesthetics in this mode? I think... You could think of it as exploring a space of possibilities. What factors can combine in aesthetic life? And given those possibilities, can any general patterns, tendencies, common values in aesthetic life be discerned? So you have to have a quite open-ended goal. You, you can't be assuming that it's going to converge, that you will get the general patterns, but you have to see what's, what seems possible. And I think you have to attempt to identify and test your own universalizing commitments. So what are so to do this talk, I had to think, oh, what do I universalize about? I'm EJ. Well, I assume aesthetic orientation is central to being at home in the world. And I don't mean that in a local, personal way. I mean that universally. Can I defend that? Another point, well, sort of building off my Kantian education, I take humankind to be the aesthetically relevant kind. Those are the beings whose aesthetic lives I'm interested in. Is that okay? Is that defensible? Third, I assume that the personal aesthetic path has weight, um, that it is not simply a product of collective pressures and socialization. Can I really support that? Is that universal? in the right way. And lastly, it's worth acknowledging or important to acknowledge and reflect critically on the global movements of aesthetic traditions. They collide, meld, they're imposed on each other, 
There's suppression, elevation, appropriation, primitivization, commercialization, there's loss, there's renewal. And all of those, I think, are philosophically potentially very interesting and important to formulate and evaluate those processes properly. I want to actually explore a little bit more this tension between, you know, the universalizing aspiration of philosophy and its evident parochiality, but also more general themes, I think, about how we approach the the universal uh, when we are very much rooted in the particular. Um, I mean, first of all, one, one sort of thought I had there was that, I mean, you're very interested in, in literature and fiction, and one thing that's said about that is that precisely what that's doing there is it's often dealing with universal themes through a very particular story. <laughs> so you're reading a story about one person in one place in one time. But, you know, it resonates with people beyond that uh, because, well, if it's done well, that's one of the things it does. So I suppose a question I've got really here is, is it a false assumption to think that if something is very rooted in the particular, in the local, that it can't illuminate the universal? And, and does that apply to philosophy and to philosophical aesthetics? Yeah, that's a great sort of bringing together of my themes. And yeah, so partly you're harking back to Aristotle, which is a good thing to do. I mean, that's one of the things he says long, long ago about what these characters in, say, Greek tragedy are for us. Well, they are, they seem like named individuals, Achilles, Oedipus, but he says they're actually universals. I mean, they are, they show up, they seem to act and speak and you know, affect us as individuals. And yet what we are doing with them has more to do with kinds and universal characters and the possibilities for those characters. Okay. So if he's right about that, and, and I actually do think there's something quite right about that, that representations of human life reach out to us as representations, as someone saying, here is a category or a set of categories that are relevant to living a life. And then you get to think about those categories, as well as engaging with the story and imagining somebody doing what they're doing and killing their father and marrying their mother, etc. <laughs> you know? But it's also the kind of being that might do that. And, and so you get access to these universal kinds, qualities, concepts, really. So I think that's quite right. And as people, I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm going to just universalize some more about people. We're really good at uh, as it were, creating the context that makes sense to us. So let me give you an example. There's a really interesting essay by the 20th century um, American writer James Baldwin. Okay, so he grew up in Harlem in the 1930s, quite poor. He had a teacher who really 
cared about him and got him reading Charles Dickens. Okay. And he was a very precocious reader. But so he he has a kind of memoir essay where he talks about reading um, Tale of Two Cities. He reads this Dickens, like 19th century British novel, really seems to have nothing to do with Harlem. And he says, I saw Madame Lafarge in my neighborhood. I saw the blood running on the streets. And <laughs> you think, okay, he, he wasn't granting that Dickens was relevant to 19th century England. He was saying he was reading it for him and, and making it matter in his world. Okay, so suppose that's part of what we do with art, and I hope it is. There's a way in which we are able to... Um, sort of build new aesthetic connections sort of creatively. And now I guess the issue is what have we done there? Have we proven that there is a universal connection here, that what was meaningful to Dickens or his audience is in the same way meaningful to a child in 1930s Harlem? I don't know. I don't know how to prove that. But I want to, like allow that we are capable of kind of seeing beyond our own local personal patch. Definitely, we have to do that. Art definitely helps us do that. I guess I'm just not so interested in whether we can um, therefore claim here are some universal truths about human nature or you know, the themes of the work, that is going to be hard to prove. Anyway, I, I, th- I guess I'm just saying, yeah, I like the challenge you're posing to me, really, that you don't want to throw out universalizing tendencies too quickly because they might, in fact, be really important to us and, in fact, quite crucial to what we're doing with art. Yeah, so I suppose the part I'm thinking of here is whether or not when we think about what it means to be universal, whether we might be at risk of having a very particular understanding of that, which is sort of mistaken. So, you know, you think about Thomas Nagel and, and the view from nowhere. I mean, one of the points of Nagel's view from nowhere is that if objectivity means complete, you have to completely uproot yourself from your own point of view and to see things with a kind of a God's eye, it's of course impossible. But, you know, he was talking about how we have the capacity to to gain a sort of a a more objective uh, way of looking at things. But there's also a sort of way um, of of thinking about it, which is very prominent in in Jane thinking, of course, which is that you you gain a certain objectivity or universality by, by combining different perspectives. So, I mean, to put it this way, for example, I mean, everything in the world we know through the senses. We can taste them, we can see them, we can hear them, whatever it might be. And all these different modalities are, are very, very different, but they're, they're all of the same thing. And they all, you know, have, have their truths about them. And so, this, so, so I'm going a bit of a long way around here. When we're thinking about, you know, what we're trying to do, because I'm also interested in the question you've got, the broader question about philosophy you introduced at the beginning, you know, the Jay Garfield, Brian Van Norden sort of point that um, there are these different philosophical traditions 
and the West has tended to ignore the non-Western ones. But it's an open question in the article you refer to whether the objective is to try and create the one philosophy or preserve all these different um, traditions. And I'm just wondering how much you're sympathetic to the view that actually it's by, as it were, preserving the different traditions that we actually can get the best view overall mm -hmm. because that mm -hmm. allows us to have more perspectives than if we try and create the one global philosophy. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just say that one of the first things you said I think is quite important. Like, we shouldn't think it's sort of all or nothing, objectivity or chaos and, you know, arbitrary subjectivity. No, it's actually, you can expand your horizons to take the, the theme of the lecture series in a way that becomes more resilient to challenge and more um, capable of handling problems. And, and, and so even if you could never say, ah, this is the view from nowhere, you could say, well, now we are better able to see how the issues are configured and, and different ways of approaching them. So you've added perspectives helpfully. Now, in terms of what happens when you bring together traditions that might even seem to just conflict, say that they give rationality a different priority or role, or let's say, well, it still seems to take your kind of um, what I took to be a like positive, optimistic thought is that you do learn about your own tradition by, as it were, I don't know, seeing the outside of it, like seeing how it looks to, to another tradition. So if I'm obsessed with rationality, it could be really illuminating to try to get inside the view that that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you privilege rationality? That somehow, even if you're not quite sure how you put all this together, you have advanced in your understanding. You're seeing maybe the, the, the limitations of a certain conceptual scheme or a set of values that you have thought were uh, unassailable. At least you can think about why they are assailable. And that seems you could count that as a, an advance in general philosophical understanding. When I try to think about how literary works help me as a philosopher, it often in a way is this sort of process where things I've taken for granted is the only way to think about something they just start to look non-obvious when you see a literary work that doesn't assume all of that. A typical person like you or I, we have we live in this kind of cosmopolitan kind of realm where we we enjoy we we like to enjoy things from different traditions and different cultures, and perhaps people even take kind of a pride in, in that. Sometimes to the extent they actually can even end up looking down on their own. But in the Tony Morrison passage you read, there was another phrase which struck me, which was familiar and therefore loved images. And it was a familiar and therefore loved, I thought was very mm -hmm. interesting. And it just made me yeah. wonder about this, you know, what you're saying about feeling at home in the world and so forth. Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me you're saying there's something 
important to our aesthetic sensibility about being located. And if that's so, well, you might want to say something else about that, but if that's so, is there something lost if we sort of like become, can one become too cosmopolitan, if you like? Perhaps your aesthetic sensibilities just get diluted rather than expanded. Okay, I think that's rather a deep question for self-reflection. Like, I think we could each ask ourselves this. I don't want to romanticize, as it were, the simple aesthetic life where, you know, there's just great continuity and not much innovation or something like that. But it is, there's something about having no patterns or no, nothing that you could particularly think, ah, that's what, um, a street scene looks like to me, or or that's what a, a piece of furniture, you know, that that I can identify as my kind of furniture. Or it, I think there is something lost there when you just might each thing. Well, that could be part of my life. That could that could fit into my scheme of things. I'm just sensing, or I'm just speculating that that is difficult for beings like us to sustain with contentment. One thing that perhaps is going on in the Morrison passages is that she's trying to channel the childlike. And I think as children, possibly we're a bit better at just really coming to know where we're at. I don't know if you remember, like, whatever, the cracks on the ceiling in the room I slept in as a child, they were very, very like <laughs> I really knew them. Um, and, and this thing about how it feels to put coins in your shoe when you're going to the, I actually did that as a child. I hadn't thought about it again until I read Toni Morrison. And then I thought that was a very, you know, I, I really knew what it was like to wear, to have my coins in my shoe. <laughs> and to have that, like to know what it's going to feel like when you go somewhere, what it's going to look like. I don't know. We don't have so much of that. And we have, I think what you were saying is we've sort of willingly, if you, if we're privileged enough to be able to eat food from all over the world or have decoration that comes from all kinds of places, we've sort of happily piled that on. Again, if you can afford to do that. And what is the outcome? I do think I'm rather aesthetically chaotic. And I'm not willing to think that that's just kind of a nice, happy hubbub. I think it might be actually a bit just chaotic. <laughs> yeah, I also wonder if there's a potential sort of double standard to that as well, because yeah, it strikes me again that um, a lot of people who, who pride themselves in their cosmopolitanism that are kind of parasitic on other people not being so, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you, you want you want to appreciate whatever it might be, let's say traditional African woodwork, for example, and you're very disappointed if you find out that actually it's 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 not made by someone who's been doing it in the family for ten generations. It's actually been done by someone who's who's moved in from from China or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I just wonder mm -hmm. if there's, there's that potential. You know, it's that, yeah. there's always this yeah. risk of this exoticization. Yeah. I've got, I've got a question actually which relates to this about feeling at home in the world from Zach, who says, I was really interested in your claim about feeling at home in the world. What do you make of Adorno's assertion that being at home in the world might mean we are 
maladjusted to that world? Perhaps a little bit of a sideways question, because maybe what Adorno meant wasn't quite the same as what you meant. I don't remember Adorno saying that, so I'm thinking of different ways what that point might mean. I mean, it could mean that there's something wrong with the world, and Adorno certainly thought there was a lot wrong with the world, so that maybe the world might be such that you really could only think you were at home in it mistakenly, you know, that that the world is not actually hospitable to us. So there'd be some sort of illusion in thinking you were at home in it. So that could be one thing. Or he just doesn't like the, the notion of being at home in the world that I'm presenting as a good thing. But you might say that the right way to be is to be in resistance, perhaps, or to fight, you know, to seek maladjustment or something like that. The Morrison story, I think, perhaps brings out some of the tension of this, right? Because it's a girl, it's a young girl, and she's naive. She feels at home in the world. She encounters the racism and she suddenly isn't. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. her innocence is taken away. She doesn't feel at home in the world in that, in that same way. Maybe being at home in the world isn't that kind of childhood innocence. And is there a way of being at home in the world in which we are, as Adorno would like us to be, fully aware of the problems and tensions? And in fact, isn't that one of the things that fiction and, and literature and the arts can do? It can alert us to what's wrong as well as what's right. In a way, though, that still helps us to sort of feel genuinely here. Yeah, so that's nice. And let me see if I can connect this clearly to the way Morrison handles that. Because the child who, um, Pecola is her name, who sees the dandelions on the sidewalk crack and then later sort of disavows them. Um, she, she suffers sort of irreparable harm from kind of aesthetic aesthetic expectations that she can't meet. And I won't explain how that works. The narrator, the one who gives the other passage talking about what she wants for Christmas is an experience. She's allowed to be older and wiser. So she she's narrating about her own childhood and Pecola's childhood and exposing the thing that Pecola can't understand. And so the reader then gets the benefit of the older Claudia's understanding. And it's a very dark understanding. It's a, you know, she's sort of just um, making it really clear how people's potential for what I would call a good aesthetic life has been corrupted. And so then you sort of go through this, just layering of perspectives on what's going on. And the novel as a whole, I think, even though you get Claudia's very, very dark vision, you still get Claudia thinking about what's been going on. And that is a really valuable achievement. And it's one that you might think that is what the novel can do. It can make you kind of see the unfolding of a really devastating aesthetic and ethical set of circumstances and yet achieve reflective clarity about it. Yeah, that achievement that the literary work can, I think, carry out might be the, uh, is it a maladjustment? It's a, it's a good maladjustment, possibly. I don't know, like, 
being resistant to a certain thing you know is at work in your society. So you're not attuned to it, but you're importantly critiquing it. Zach did have a little, a little bit of clarification yeah. on what he meant. And he was thinking about that famous line, no poetry could be written after Auschwitz. Maybe we shouldn't feel at home in the world. But does that accord with your feeling that we ought to encounter more than we feel at home with? Yeah. I, so that is one, one thought. I don't think I spelled this out very well. The idea that the world might be such that the right thing to do is to not be comfortable in it, to not be adjusted to it well. I, I mean, there's lots of debate about exactly what Adorno hoped for or meant by that comment. I'm on the side of give me more poetry because the poetry can do the hard thing of at least partly not be consoling, but be trying to make us face the thing that has turned the world into a nightmare. I mean, I think it really can do that, but it will, it's true, it will give you some sort of artistic form that is a positive achievement. You know, it is a positive step to find the words for it. And I guess at a, in a certain mood or at a certain point, Adorno thought that would not be worth doing. But I guess I think it it is worth doing. It's like an amazing achievement if you can do that after Auschwitz. And that somehow has to be honored. Um, I've got another question here. And there's always a bit of clarification, really, because the question is aesthetics in art or in life. Um, because it seems to me that in the talk, you've been talking sometimes about art, sometimes in, in life. And I, I think it'd be quite interesting just to sort of stand back and get your take here on when we talk about mm -hmm. it's, it's our aesthetic mm -hmm. orientation to the world, how, you know, the specific aesthetic, um, artistic life bits and uh, aesthetic orientation mm -hmm. in general. Well, I would thank the questioner for pointing out a, a sort of um, issue behind what I was doing here, because I did try to emphasize what you might just call the aesthetic in life. This is this pervasive responsiveness to experience, to conditions that doesn't have to have anything to do with art. But then there are sort of um, crystallizations of aesthetic um, priorities and possibilities that are in art. Um, really intensely. And that's, I think, I like the Yuriko Saito article because her piece is kind of about both. Like she is talking about things that probably amount to artistic practices of ceramics and this kind of very delicate design and repair and so forth that you might say this becomes an art, but it it's sort of continuous with just making teacups just so that you'll have a vessel to drink from. So she's doing that. She's also talking about the, the ceremonies in which um, these vessels would have been used, um, which again, in her account, I think sort of mix the artistic and what you might just call the, the living of aesthetic choices. Now, you certainly could just think about 
the cultural locatedness and the personal without bringing a huge amount of art into play or without bringing art appreciation into the picture. But in terms of what you might call understanding aesthetic value, it is useful, I think, often to think about how we identify uh, the features of artworks that have aesthetic value. That is one of the contexts in which people talk really carefully about aesthetic value. So, so that's one reason you might sort of put these domains together in this kind of talk. But to your second thought, you know, that we can't be in two spaces at once, I suppose I disagree with that, but I'd, I'd have to think harder about what I'm claiming there. But uh, like very roughly, when we engage with art, we are the real people we are. <laughs> and we somehow, these art objects are in our lives. And I think that's sort of the basic important thing about them. I guess what you're you're suggesting that I, I'm not acknowledging very much is the sense in which the the artwork can change our aesthetic context kind of radically. It can give you entry to a, a space of experience um, that in some sense just feels like it came out of nowhere. You're washing the dishes and then you turn on the radio and there's some incredible music that has nothing to do with your life and you might feel completely absorbed in it and carried away from the dishwashing, that is a, that's an incredible power of art. And you might say, ah, I'm in a different space and I am going to be responsive to very different values and stimuli in that space. Um, I somehow would want to grant that and yet say you're in your life too. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I'm I'm dealing with it well, but that would be my attempt. Very interesting indeed. Now, I'd like to perhaps turn to a, a few of the questions, the points you raised at the end, um, and I can tie that in with a, a question we got from, from the audience. Uh, you said that you're you're not seeking a harmonised conception of aesthetic engagement and evaluation. I think you said something like that's just doesn't seem interesting to you or worthwhile. Uh, perhaps I'd like you to say a little bit more about that before we just mm. set that aside. And and that does relate because um, John Kaleha, or Kaleja, as I pronounced it, um, it uh, put up a question here, which was that, uh, you know, does, for example, Kant's harmonious, harmonious integration of memory and imagination lead to a gl global theory of aesthetics? So you did talk about, you know, Kant's view of the free play of the uh, imagination and so forth. And, you know, that does sound like... Uh, some kind of universal understanding of how art works, which has mm -hmm. some kind of merit. So why are you saying you're not interested in creating a harmonised global conception of aesthetic <laughs> engagement and evaluation? <laughs> um, thank you for the question. Um, I have found Kant to be very, um, a very powerful theory builder in this area. It's a really attractive theory so, yeah, he thinks there is a um, distinctive aesthetic mode that generates a distinctive pleasure, this disinterested pleasure, in which you're not, you're, you're not settling on 
what you want out of this experience or what the experience is for. You're not able to attach a concept to it that will explain what it is and therefore what can be done with it or what's to be believed on that basis. You're just not able to. This is the free play. It's a free play, rather. But it is a free play of our, you know, our um, imagination and understanding that is these cognitive faculties we have. And the thing is, (laughs) when you look at other traditions, I think what you find is that it may not be a free play. And this pleasure it's just not always appropriate to call it a disinterested pleasure, I think. It's very tricky territory. So I don't want to claim, I don't want to try to explain the, the depth of the issues here. But if you take Claudia's account of her experience that she would like for Christmas, I'm presenting that as a kind of aesthetic ideal in her hands, like that she is trying to pack into an imagined experience exactly what she wants. And I don't think there's any way you could call this a disinterested pleasure. She's just more trying to explore the possibilities of meaningful pleasure for her. And I want to say that's a great aesthetic project. And I don't want to have to step back and in a Kantian way and say, well, but it's, it's like really personal to you, Claudia, <laughs> and you're not engaged in a free play. You're actually like using your, your desires to be close to people and, and to have a certain kind of fullness of experience that's too particular to you. And I, I just can't disqualify what she's talking this well it's a fictional character but can't disqualify it by saying ah it's too anchored in your needs and desires okay so let me say one other actually universalizing thing that sort of comes out of Kant that I probably do believe about the aesthetic which is it's not that it's disinterested pleasure it's not that it's a totally free play but it is an experimental. It has some kind of openness to questioning what we think is good built into it. That is, that's sort of how I think of the importance of the aesthetic, that it's a place where we experience things rather carefully, intensely, and we don't have to be um, already knowledgeable about what the good of all of this is. So you might call that a kind of freedom, but but it's more uh, an openness to changing our minds about what we want and experience or what what could be good there, what kinds of categories might be useful to us. Um, So I probably would always look for that in the aesthetic, but I I don't want to... um, rule out certain kinds of interests, certain kinds of function. I just don't see a reason to go full Kantian on on the aesthetic. And part of that comes out of just seeing different traditions where 
this is something I've been teaching or we've been thinking about in my classes this week where the functionality of things and the aesthetic satisfactions of them just really come together. And that's a rather un-Kantian way to think about aesthetic experience. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting indeed. I mean, I must admit, when, when I was doing aesthetics as an undergraduate, I very much enjoyed it. I very liked it. But I ended up getting very frustrated with this sort of this idea that we should be trying to say what is art or what is beauty. It seemed to me that these things contain multitudes. And it was very interesting to explore those multitudes. But, you know, playing this game of can we nail them down into to one universal totalizing mm. theory seemed to me obviously hopeless. And um, I'm surprised people continued with it. Now, we've got a question here from Andrew Lambert, which is, a, is there's a background to this, actually. So before we, he, he, he's, the background to this is, in another comment, he points out that certain classical Confucian thinkers approve of socialization as a means to generate shared aesthetic responses with a view mm. to generating consensus and social harmony. So, you know, this is a, a real view that, mm. you know, a lot of the purpose of art is to cultivate that shared social space. And that's really mm. important for bringing people together. And it is quite interesting, actually, how, you know, if you think of many times of coming together, national times of coming together, they can be around, particularly around sort of a music or performance or something. So that's the kind of the background. But then, then the question we've got here, which um, what, can you say more then about your assumption that the personal path has weight? Because there's a sense in which all individuated aesthetic experience is personal in some sense, right? I mean, we you don't just mean in the trivial sense that we all have and in, we all react to things aesthetically as individuals. You was presumably saying mm -hmm. more than that. So, so why do mm -hmm. you think the personal path has weight? What do you mean by that, I guess? Well, I suppose one basic thing I could say is that I, I don't think we wait for socialization to have aesthetic orientation or disorientation. We're able to... Uh, a sort of diverge or go our own way. And it's kind of, I suppose, a precious, I think of that as a precious thing about us. So even if I have soaked up an enormous amount of aesthetic expectations, patterns, tendencies I don't even know I have about what's appealing or not, I am able to sort of overcome that or, or, as I say, just diverge from that individually as needed, perhaps. That is, I don't think we're all alike in what we need aesthetically. I, I, I think that, and it has to do with all sorts of things going on in one's life. When you have suffered great loss, I think then you're just not going to be able to accept perhaps the, the happy vision or the the happy the the positive aesthetic qualities of things in the same way and so that sort of specifics of your life path are going to i think they have power to affect um give you a, a way to um reject or abstain from certain kinds of uh aesthetic socialization but i also think we just we we don't always live our our <laughs> live aesthetically with full power 
I don't always pay attention in the right way to my aesthetic life. And I sort of can be on a sort of cultural autopilot, like thinking I get what I'm experiencing and what it amounts to and what I'm really um, appreciative of. And that's just not fine-grained enough, in fact. Like, I, I can, if I sort of really zero in on it, I can realize, no, I, I don't think I'm fully... I don't subscribe to this this aesthetic taste that in some sense I've been using or acting as if this is my taste, but I can I can come to realize it's not adequate for me. So I think I'm just sort of trying to describe what I mean by it, but how to prove that it really does have weight, I suppose it's just because your socialization will never cover everything that needs to be covered in your life path in in aesthetic terms. Like, we are each unique in what we're going to encounter. The way the cushions in my office chair react to me and the way I'm shaped and so forth, that's my aesthetic life, (laughs) Um, um, minimal as it is. And there's a sense in which I have to at some point in my life, I hope I, 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 I acknowledge that individual, you know, stamp of experience on me. I feel like I really haven't given a clear answer to that, but I don't want to dismiss at all the thing that was in the, the setup for your question, this idea that collective aesthetic influences can be really important to creating community the songs that we all know. Well, we, there are very few songs that we all know, but if you are in a community where you can sing together, for instance, that's a kind of wonderful, like, um, participation in a, something bigger than the self that can be a really heartening part of a life. I mean, Andrew knows a lot more about Ruism or Confucianism than I do, so feel free to shoot me down if I get this wrong. But it seems to me that what you said, Eileen, is, is is kind of compatible with that broad Confucian view, as you've said in your final comments there, because the the traditional Confucian view is not that harmony requires absolute uniformity. There has to be space mm. for mm. diversity. You know, harmony is not uniformity. <laughs> um, it actually re- requires some difference. So maybe there are, you know, these two things are not necessarily in intention and that you know um, yeah. and both extremes would be intolerable the kind of absolute social conformity but also the kind of mm. anarchy of each each to their own um one of the points you made was we should demote this concern for what's best you know that this is a kind of a, a a fool's errand i suppose a lot of people the resistance they have to that is well surely there's got to be room for judgments of good and bad better and best right you know if you're not going to try which is the best the whatever is there still a room, do you think, in, in aesthetic judgment for judgments of good and bad, better and worse? Or should you just get, mm-hmm. forget all about that? Yeah, um, better and worse is much better. Uh, <laughs> sorry, better and worse are much better, and we're, we're, we're better at them, and they're more relevant to the choices we have to make. So, yeah, when I say defer or demote, that's sort of a wrong-headed claim on my part in the sense that I would be saying we're actually making some sort of implicit aesthetic better and worse judgments all the time when I 
put these socks on in the morning rather than those. And there's something aesthetically going on there. I'm probably making an, oh, those are better um, judgment. And you just have to do that. Okay. But I'm probably not making a deep aesthetic value judgment. I'm, I'm making a really complex, situated, better than this aesthetic judgment. Um, and I, so I think that's quite important. We have to do that. I just think we've been crazily worried about the best, the masterpieces. I, I actually considered having a slide in this talk about the use of the term masterpiece in the aesthetic debates that I read about. I just think that's been really hindering. <laughs> like um, we would get, this is more the Humean aesthetic tradition. We would get the ideal critics who would be able to make the judgment of which works are best. Although actually maybe Hume isn't so set on that, but still I just think at this point in time, when we're trying to expand our horizons, settling on the value judgment should seem like a hugely difficult task, hugely fraught. So at least defer it. But of course, keep on making your necessary better and worse discriminations, because that's actually, that is, we, we will do that. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.